Reflections on Herman Melville's Moby Dick by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 If you're a goblet around, he has the harpooners take their the irons off their harpoons and turn them upside down so that the hollow part will make itself available as a chalice. And then he begins to eye them. I think there's a play on the word A-Y-E and E-Y-E, uh, their consent and this eye of Ahab. The rest of the ship's company formed a circle around the group. He stood for an instant searchingly eyeing every man of his crew. But those wild eyes of his, as the bloodshot eyes of the prairie wolves meet the eye of their leader, ere he rushes at their head in the trail of the, bri- of the bison, but alas, only to fall into the hidden snare of the Indian. There's a kind of crude attempt at symbolism here. He, has, he, says, he tells the harpooners to cross lances, and he grabs them in the, at the axis, and it says that uh, he suddenly and nervously twitched them, as though he's just kind of grappling around for some kind of symbolic thing that would do this. Meanwhile, glancing intently from starbuck to stub, from stub to flask, it seemed as though by some nameless interior volition he would fain have shocked into them the same fiery emotion accumulated within the laden jar of his own magnetic life. A laden jar is a, is a primitive kind of a little battery. The three mates quailed before his strong, sustained, and mystic aspect. Stub and flask looked sideways from him. The honest eye of starbuck fell, stra- starbuck fell straight downward. In vain, cried Ahab. But maybe tis well. For did ye three but once take the full force shock, then my own electric thing, that had perhaps expired from out of me. Perchance, too, it would have dropped ye dead. But he, he has to think of some way to get them involved in it. So he comes, his final strategy, which more or less works, is that he gets the mates to be the cupbearers to the harpooners. So they take it and hand it to the harpooners, and the harpooners quaff it down. And so they become part of the conspiracy, even though it seems to be a fairly passive one. And he says, he gives the mates the cups that are then going to be handed to the harpooners. And he says, three to three ye stand, commend the murderous chalices. Bestow them, ye who are now made parties to this indissoluble league. Ha, Starbuck, but the deed is done. He became part of the liturgy. To cries and maledictions against the white whale, the spirits were simultaneously quaffed down with a hiss. Starbuck paled and turned and shivered. Once more and finally, the replenished pewter went the rounds among the frantic crew. When waving his free hand to them, they all dispersed and Ahab retired within his cabin, very much like Father Maple at the end of his sermon. The... uh, Scriptures talk about the Antichrist, the book of the Apocalypse, because it is, the, again, a reference to that sense of um, the, the worst that can be done is a parody of the, of the Christian mysteries. There's another reference to that in chapter 37. Again, it's a, a stage situation. The cabin by the stern windows, Ahab sitting alone and gazing out. And Ahab says, Is then the crown too heavy that I wear, this iron crown of Lombardy? And that's the crown worn by Constantine, uh, which was reputed to have a nail from the crucifix embedded into the crown. 
Yet it is bright with many a gem. I, the wearer, see not its far flashings, but darkly feel that I wear that that dazzlingly confounds. Tis iron, that I know, not gold. Tis split, too, that I feel. The jagged edge galls me so. My brain seems to beat against the solid metal. Well, that just has to be left there as a, as a magnificent symbolic commentary on this taking on of the mantle of Christian mystery in some perverted and dark sense. It's iron, not gold, and it's split and jagged. But still in all, it is possessed of gems. He says, I, the wearer, see not its far flashings, but darkly feel that I wear that that dazzlingly confounds. And then he says, as Rick was saying, tis not a hard task. I thought to find one stubborn, at the least. But my one cogged circle fits into all their various wheels and they revolve. Or, if you will, like so many anthills of powder, they all stand before me and I their match. In the next chapter, again a little play. Dusk by the mainmast, Starbuck leaning against it. My soul is more than matched. She's overmanned and by a madman. Notice the pun on matched. He says, They are anthills of powder and I their match. In the next chapter, Starbuck says, My soul is more than matched. And uh, when the crewmen are whooping it up down below after the ceremonies are over, uh, Starbuck listens to them and he says, the white whale is their demigorgon. And again, you get that hint of the image of Ahab holding up the Medusa head and turning them all to stone. And I think one of the most important and enlightening chapters in this part of the book is another play, chapter 40. It's entitled Midnight Forecastle. And it's all the sailors lounging around. And they are singing in chorus, which I think is very important. You take a glance at the chapter and you can tell that it's a very obvious attempt to indicate that the Pequot is made up of the whole world. These are sailors from everywhere. And they have, because of this uh, demonic ritual of Ahab's, they have been federated along one keel. They have been... Uh, Ahab has... Uh, uh, has uh, achieved what passes for the time being for cultural cohesion. The, the cheap shortcut to ch cultural cohesion is to find a common enemy. And that will work for a while. And if, you're, if you've been isolados for long enough, you will uh, tend to opt for that shortcut solution. And... Uh, most people who have uh, who have received the projections of large numbers of people get uh, learn instinctively something about how to take advantage of that shortcut and and to uh, and to bring in to cause the cultural cohesion to to be formed out of common antagonism and that's what has happened here 
So this seems like a cultural cohesion. They are singing in chorus. But notice it's now midnight, so we're going to take a look at uh, something else about it. I think the message here is if you use fission energy to t take a, a physical example, if you use fission energy to try to create this coherence, uh, pretty soon the fission uh, reaction spreads and you get uh, and the coherence doesn't last very long. So the the one to watch in this all this is the old Manx sailor. He's the sort of prophet or wise man of the crowd. He says, I wonder whether these jolly lads bethink them of what they are dancing over. Well, well, be like the whole world's one ball, as your scholars have it, and so tis right to make one ballroom of it. Dance on, lads. You're young. I was once. Wonderful. Just leaving it hanging there. And then later he says, This is the sort of weather when brave hearts snap ashore and keeled hulls split at sea. Notice the fission imagery. Our captain has his birthmark. Now, that comes back into play. The fission down, runs down the body of Ahab. Our captain has his birthmark. Look yonder, boys. There's another in the sky, and it's a, a streak of lightning. Lurid-like, you see? All else pitch black. That lightning is the match. These little anthills of powder have convinced themselves uh, that they are, that there is cultural cohesion. But in this little scene, in the middle of the night, there is a lightning and the fissure opens up again. Brave hearts crack, keeled hulls split, and the, and the sky itself is rent. And it is rent by what passes for a match. All else is black and there's that white flash of lightning. And the Spanish sailor says, no, Doggo showing his teeth. It's very interesting that this begin that it that the point the flash point for the for the breaking apart of that false cultural consensus is racism. Dago is the great Negro harpooner. And so if one were looking at speeches being made by the great leaders with the great navy bands behind them and the flags flapping in the breeze as they make them, one might come to feel that this there is cultural consensus. But then if you go over here and you look at what some other people are looking at, like television violence and the number of racial incidents on college campuses and so on and so forth, you get a sense of what that's costing, that false consensus. And here it is. It begins at the point of racism. And the Spanish sailor says, no, that's not lightning, that's Doggo showing his teeth. And Doggo jumps up and says, swallow thine, mannequin, white skin, white liver. And the Spanish sailor meets him, knife thee heartily, big frame, small spirit. And there they are. Everybody says, arrow, arrow, arrow. What's important to see is that this thing is breaking apart. Tashtigo says with a whiff, 
a row, a low, a row, a loft, gods and men, both brawlers, hump. In other words, there's a, there's a squall coming in, a storm coming in, the skies storming, and now it's storming on the ship. And Tashtigo says, well, there you have it. The Belf Then all of them respond in kind according to their national character. So the Belfast uh, sailor, uh, the Irishman aboard, a row, hurrah, a row, the virgin be blessed, a row, plunge in with ye. He thinks, thank goodness. The English sailor, on the other hand, fair play, snatched the Spaniard's knife, a ring, a ring. Very British response to this situation. And when he says a ring, a ring, form a ring around the two fighters, the old Manx sailor says, ready formed, there, the ringed horizon. In that ring, Cain struck Abel. Sweet work, right work, no? Why then, God, madest thou the ring? And there's a great squall, and everything just concludes in this kind of chaos of the storm and of the antagonism. And in the next chapter, Ishmael says, I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath, my oath had been welded with theirs and stronger shouted. And more did I hammer and clench my oath because of the dread in my soul. A wild, hysterical, sympathetical feeling was in me. Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy ears I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I, I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. Even though he knew better, this is, I think, important. Even though he knew better, he says, with greedy ears, I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. Strange chapter on the whiteness of the whale. He says, it was the whiteness of the whale that above all things appalled me. And it was the whiteness that is the absence of color, a kind of blankness an inscrutability. And both Ahab and Ishmael try to try to compensate for that whiteness or that absence of dimensionality. Exile experience, part of the Exodus experience, part of the wilderness experience is to be able and willing to tolerate that whiteness. Uh, the, the dark night of the soul, that's another version of the same thing, or, or perhaps better, that 14th century uh, English mystic uh, who wrote uh, The Cloud of Unknowing. To be able to tolerate the cloud of unknowing without some knee-jerk reaction, trying to impose, trying to reformat it somehow too quickly. Again, Paul Tillich says, the condition of man's relation to God is first of all one of not having, not seeking, not knowing, and not grasping. So to be able to tolerate the whiteness of the whale. But no, right after we learn about the whiteness of the whale, shortly we're learning about Ahab's penchant for going down below and charting the whereabouts of the whale. So he pulls out his the large wrinkled roll of yellowish sea charts and spreads them before him on the screwed down table. And then he's, every night he goes over these charts trying to... Uh, trying to establish within coordinates something about this whale. And one thing, of course, that that coordinated picture does not allow for is the depth experience. It is the Cartesian coordinates 
without a sense of this other dimension, the vertical dimension, the depth dimension of it. And again, there is the parody of the cross. So Ishmael says of Ahab, Ah, God, what trances of torments does that man endure who is consumed with one unachieved revengeful desire? He sleeps with clenched hands and wakes with his own bloody nails in his palms. Another crucifixion image. Notice it is clenched hands, the Promethean stance, the clenched fist, and you turn it around and look here, it is the nails going into the palms. It's the perfect overlay of those two images. And Ishmael says, God help thee, old man. Thy thoughts have created a creature in thee, and he whose intense thinking thus makes him a Prometheus. A vulture feeds upon that heart forever, that vulture the very creature he creates. And Ishmael and Queequeg, in their own way, are creating a set of coordinates. Chapter 47, The Map Maker. Queequeg and I were mildly employed weaving what is called a sword mat for an additional lashing to our boat, so still and subdued and yet somehow preluding was all the scene, and such an incantation of reverie lurked in the air that each silent sailor seemed resolved into his own indivisible self. And they're weaving away at this sword mat, and he begins to speculate. He says, well, this is the threads are necessity, and the shuttle is free will, and the sword that, that, that clamps down on the threads as it pushes them down is chance. And he said, it seemed as though we were weaving the loom of time, but notice, this is not time. This is time as a condition, as a kind of vague condition. But it, but somehow he raises the question of time, and then he says, the straight warp of necessity, not to be swerved from its ultimate course, its very alternating vibration, indeed, only tending to that. Free will still free to ply her shuttle between given threads, and chance, though restrained by its play within the right lines of necessity and sideways in its, mo in its motions modified by free will, though thus prescribed to by both, chance by turns rules either and has the last featuring blow at events, except for the fact that right there in the text you get asterisks, 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 as though suddenly there is a new dimension to the weaving. The asterisks come into play in several places here, but I... I think they have an interesting textual, uh, visual implication because something else is breaking into that nice little neat system. And what it is is the rending of the veil. Thus we were weaving and weaving away when I started at a sound so strange, long-drawn and musically wild and unearthly that the ball of free will dropped from my hand and I stood gazing up at the clouds whence the voice dropped like a wing. A high aloft in the cross trees was that mad gay-header Tashtigo. There she blows. Instantly all was commotion, so much for the weaving of the nice little pattern. The sp and then he thought he was weaving something called the loom of time. The sperm whale blows as a clock ticks. 
with the same undeviating and reliable uniformity. Quick, Stuart, cried Ahab. Time, time. Doughboy hurried below, glancing at the watch and reported the exact minute to Ahab. But that's not what time it was. It was the eleventh hour. It was the kairos time. You know, there are two, in New Testament Greek, there are two notions of time. Chronos time, that's the ticking time. And that's the time that will fit into the coordinates. That's the kind of time you can put into a loom. But then there is the kairos time, the breaking in time, the, the apocalyptic time, or the rending of the veil time, or the eleventh hour time. And that is time that is not simply the condition, but the agent of a, of a breakthrough. And suddenly it is that kind of a time. It is a crisis time. The alarm goes off instead of the ticking. At this critical moment, a sudden exclamation was heard that took every eye from the whale. With a start, all glared at dark Ahab, who was surrounded by five dusky phantoms that seemed fresh formed out of air. Guess what? A private mercenary army housed in the captain's quarters. Ahab says, Already there, Fedala? Fedala is the chief harpooner. Ready was the half-hissed reply. And now, you see, it's the crisis time. And now things are getting out of hand. The oars, they go out to chase the whales, and it's the, it's, it's the news of this new private army. It's the whale, thrashing whale, and the storm at sea all at once. The oars were useless as propellers performing now the office of life preservers. So cutting the lashing of the wa waterproof match keg, after many failures, Starbuck contrived to ignite the lamp in the lantern then stretching it on a waif pole, handed it to Queequeg as the standard bearer of his forlorn hope. There then he sat, holding up that imbecile candle in the heart of that almighty forlornness. There then he sat, the sign and symbol of a man without faith, hopelessly holding up hope in the midst of despair. Things got out of hand. But an interesting thing happens out of this. And there's a funny chapter when he comes back about the hyena. It's really just a funny chapter. He says, uh, after I thought this over, I decided it was time to make a will. I thought I might as well go below and make a rough draft of my will. Queequeg, I said, come along. You shall be my lawyer, executor, and legatee. And so he makes a will. I think the thing to notice is, remember, Ish remember Ishmael up in the in the uh, masthead, losing his identity in this reverie and his stream of consciousness. After this experience, this shock of actual exposure to these conditions, there is the birth of the will. Not an Ahab-like will, but another kind of a will. It's a rough draft of a will and it's connected with Queequeg and all that. But I think symbolically what's important here is not a last will and testament so much as a symbolic reference 
to the embryonic birth in Ishmael of a will. And he says, After the ceremony was concluded upon the present occasion, I felt all the easier. A stone was rolled away from my heart. Besides, all the days I should now live would be as good as the days that Lazarus lived after his resurrection. A supplementary clean gain of so many months or weeks as the case might be. I survived myself. My death and burial were locked up in my chest. We get too far away from the contemporary political implications of all this, uh, and without going into them in any great detail, I'll just uh, read part of the text. For Captain Ahab to have supplied, to excuse me, for Captain Ahab to be supplied with five extra men as that same boat's crew, he well knew that such generous conceits never entered the heads of the owners of the Pequot. Therefore, he had not solicited a boat's crew from them, nor had he in any way hinted his desires on that head. Nevertheless, he had taken private measures of his own touching on all that matter. The subordinate phantoms soon found their place among the crew, though still, as it were, somehow distinct from them. Yet that hair-turbaned fadala remained a muffled mystery to the last. And the whole question is whether or not it's possible to resist that dynamic once it's set loose. Uh, and he sums it up in these words, Here then was this gray-headed, ungodly old man chasing with curses a Job's whale round the world at the head of a crew too, chiefly made up of mongrel renegades and castaways and cannibals, morally enfeebled also by the incompetence of mere unaided virtue or right-mindedness in Starbuck, the invulnerable jollity of indifference and recklessness in Stubb, and the pervading mediocrity in Flask. So none of the officers on board the ship had what it would take to correct that disastrous course. find that an interesting and instructive lesson. Just shy of halfway through the inferno, Dante uh, finds himself stranded on a plateau in hell, unable to go either up or down, and uh, he searches for alternatives to uh, cause some movement and finds none, and Virgil finally tells him to take off the cord that's around his waist and throw it into the pit. And he does so, and things begin to move again, much to his chagrin, in a way. Well, I thought of that because we are uh, just shy of halfway, or let's put it this way, just shy of halfway uh, through Moby Dick. There is a point where I think one can see something like a comparable snag and something like a comparable uh, a solution to the problem. Uh, if you think back to Dante's situation, he had this cord around his waist, which had been his, it was a Franciscan cord, a cord of his Franciscan vows, and it had been his attempt to achieve some kind of righteousness uh, by an act of will, by uh, the imposition of a certain moral standard on his life. And uh, that had served up to that point reasonably well, but Virgil said uh, implicitly that uh, if uh, he was to go further, he would have to abandon that form of adaptation. 
uh, and expose himself to uh, greater risk in a in a more topsy-turvy kind of a environment. Well, one could say if there is a parallel to that in Moby Dick, one could say that the that the crew of the Pequod did not successfully abandon the former adaptation and instead pursued it, uh, being hounded all the while by their captain uh, to their own final peril. Uh, but still in all, the, the dilemma might be the same. Uh, and even to the point of uh, a slight echo of this chord theme, although uh, quite differently played out in, in uh, Melville's book, uh, but still in all, some hint of it perhaps. Well, first of all, the snag. I would locate the snag in the three chapters, almost innocuous chapters, really, of um, 55, 56, and 57, and they are, they are entitled uh, thusly, of the monstrous pictures of whales, of the less erroneous pictures of whales, and the true pictures of whaling scenes, and finally, of whales in paint, in teeth, in wood, in sheet iron, in stone, in mountains, in stars. And th these chapters have to do with the always flawed attempt to render into pictorial the essence of the whale. And so he says in these chapters, among other things, these manifold mistakes in depicting the whale are not so very surprising after all. Consider, most of the scientific drawings have been taken from the stranded fish. The living whale in his full majesty and significance is only to be seen at sea in unfathomable waters, and afloat the vast bulk of him is out of sight. For all these reasons, then, any way you look at it, you must needs conclude that the great Leviathan is that one creature in the world which must remain unpainted to the last. True, one portrait may hit the mark much nearer than another, but none can hit it with any very considerable degree of exactness. So there is no earthly way of finding out precisely what the whale really looks like. Well, this appears to be, on the surface of it, a, a, a pictorial dilemma or an artistic dilemma, but it is something more like, uh, if you go a little deeper, more like a, an epistemological, to use a mouthful, uh, epistemology is uh, is the study of the limits of knowledge, or the or the approach to knowledge and its limits. Uh, and to, to to say that this is an epistemological dilemma is to say that there is a that there is a uh, a, a limit to one's ability to come to know this creature in this way. Uh, it is somewhat like uh, the uh, spiritual version of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, where he where he said, if you pursue this subject-object business uh, to its ultimate conclusion, you will find out that you cannot, you cannot uh, finally come to know uh, the material world. The enterprise collapses at some further reaches of the subatomic world, and you simply cannot find out anymore, except by ignoring half of what needs to be known. So a kind of Heisenberg uncertainty principle uh, coming up in this text, and maybe even a spiritual and psychological uh, dilemma or quandary. So what I wanted to do is take this sense of 
the whale as being unknowable and go back if if the whale is unknowable the whale is unknowable in the way in which we have tried to come to know it and the whale really is is the embodiment of what well probably we should not even try to answer that uh, everybody has tried to answer you look at part of the text and you say well the whale is God and you look at the other part of the text and you say well the whale is the demonic and another part it's this and that the whale is the enigma in the universe that we human beings wrestle with and to which we give various names at different times depending on our latest experience of it uh, or our constitutional attitude toward it or whatever but it's the great enigma and the text hits a snag and says we simply can't picture it so I would go back to the 14th century uh, mystical tract, a study of the life of contemplation by the, uh, by the English, anonymous English mystic, and the text is called The Cloud of Unknowing. And in there he writes this, All rational beings, angels and men, possess two faculties, the power of knowing and the power of loving. To the first, to the intellect, God who made them is forever unknowable. But to the second, to love, he is completely knowable. Well, the text is called the cloud of unknowing. The implication in the text is that one must begin to actively unknow some of these habits in the same way that Dante had to take the cord off and throw it into the pit if he was to go any further. To try to come to know in another way. In the cloud of unknowing, it, that other way is not the power of knowledge, but the power of love. C.S. Lewis, I think it was, who said, how did we ever get it into our heads that we could get to know the universe better by not loving it than by loving it? That's his one-line uh, critique of the scientific uh, enterprise. Uh, we may come to manipulate it with great facility and uh, to great benefit for mankind with a few little ominous byproducts along the way. But whether we come to know it in any fundamental way is another question. So is it, there's a crisis that's met here, and there is a defeat suffered. And the defeat is that one cannot come to know it in the way that we've been trying. And in the defeat there is something to be learned and a price to be paid. Uh, Melville goes on, or Ishmael goes on, the only mode in which you can derive even a tolerable idea of, this living con con of, of his living contour, that is the whale, is by going a-whaling yourself. But by so doing, you run no small risk of being eternally stove and sunk by him. Well, there is a threshold figure that appears in these, these uh, three scenes, well, uh, these three uh, chapters. These, I think of them as a kind of conundrum chapters. 
And there is a threshold figure who appears with a limp. And we have to pay attention to these limps because consciousness costs something. In the first instance, you know, things are coming to my head right now. Pascal said that when he converted, he converted uh, not to the God of the philosophers, but to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, uh, these figures and those like them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had some pretty rough going with this God they had stumbled upon. Shortly after God told Moses to go bring his people out of Egypt, he uh, ambushed him, tried to kill him. And his wife Zipporah pulled out a knife and performed a couple of circumcisions and saved the day, but it's a very strange thing for this God to do. And when Jacob was about to meet up with his, the other side of his existence, Esau, whom he cheated out of his birthright, he got he started wrestling with an angel and uh, wouldn't let him go finally until he got blessed and he became Israel instead of Jacob as a result of that. But he didn't walk away from that. He limped away from that. So that consciousness costs something. And it's at this point in the text where the price has to be paid and, the, and either the price is paid or a bigger price is paid later on for not having paid that one. So there's a threshold figure in chapter 57 and it's referred to this way. On Tower Hill, as you go down to the London docks, you may have seen a crippled beggar holding a painted board before him representing the tragic scene in which he lost his leg. There are three whales and three boats, and one of the boats, presumed to contain the missing leg in all its original integrity, is being crunched by the jaws of the foremost whale. At any time these ten years, they tell me, has that man held up that picture and exhibited that stump to an incredulous world. And then the text turns mildly comic, though it doesn't lose any of its depth. But the time of his justification has now come. His three whales are as good whales as were ever published in Wapping, at any rate, which is a whale document, and his stump as unquestionable a stump as any you will find in the Western Clearing. So he has managed somehow not to produce a perfect replica of the whale, but he has managed to convey somehow something of this whale. And he has the price he's paid for that ability to do so is a limp. Now Ahab paid that price too. But Ahab did not turn it into art or consciousness, but he turned it into energy vindictive energy. But anyway, I don't want to get into that right now. But simply to go back and to note this, I think, conscious illusion here. There are three whales and three boats, and one of the boats, Peren, presumed to contain the missing leg in all its original integrity. It is, the reason Dante had to take the cord off is because that had been his way of trying to achieve integrity. He had, he had hoped to make it through the religious business by remaining integral. 
but a point comes when it is necessary to submit to some disembodying power or dismembering power, to have that integrity shattered, to disintegrate, and that that is the price that has to be paid in the journey to consciousness. Consciousness is just another name for love. It's the name we give to love before we discover what it really is. And so Buber calls, talks about the melancholy of our fate, which is, of course, that we have to lose this original integrity and submit to a kind of dismembering or disintegration. And Buber, as you know, talks... I want to use Buber here for a second before we get into the main part of the text. Buber, as you know, talks about... Uh, sees the world as the world to which we utter one or another of the primary words. And the primary words are combinations. One, The first primary word is I, thou. And the second primary word is I, it. And he says these two depict our two uh, approaches to existence. And he says, you know, everybody after the prologue of the Gospel of John wants to, wanted to finish the sentence in their own way. In the beginning was the da-da-da. Goethe's Faust had a heyday at this, and since then other people have tried their hand at it. Well, Buber, tried, Buber who was greatly influenced by Goethe, tried his hand at it. And in the beginning is relation, said Buber. But the problem is the original relation is an unconscious one. It is a womb-like relation in which the distinction between uh, the parts of the relationship have, has not been sufficiently made in order for there to be a real conscious relationship. And he says that it is only when we have stepped out of that womb-like relatedness into the isolation and alienation that we can begin the work of putting the world back together in a consciously related way uh, with love instead of with instinct, say. And Buber calls this the cosmic pathos of the I, capital I. And just to give you a sense of it, he says, whenever the sentence, I see the tree, is so uttered that it no longer tells of a relation between the man, I, and the tree, thou, but establishes the perception of the tree as object by the human consciousness, the barrier between subject and object has been set up. The primary word, I, it, the word of separation, has been spoken. And one enters into that world where the Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again or it doesn't appear to be so. But at the same time, Buber calls it the melancholy of our fate, but it is our fate. It is an absolutely essential step into that uh, wilderness and alienation place. And the best statement on that that I know of comes from Rilke, the German poet Rilke. And he wrote this, to see landscape thus as something distant and foreign. By the way, uh, he, sp he speaks here of landscape and art. Uh, if we wanted to, uh, we could substitute for the word landscape the word whale. And then we could, or the word anything. 
and if we wanted to, we could substitute for the word art whatever it is that each of us is up to. He happened to be up to art. We might be up to something else. But the, but what he says holds for us. I'm I'm confident of that. So he says, to see landscape thus as something distant and foreign, something remote and unloving, something entirely self-contained, was necessary. If it was ever to be a medium and an occasion for an autonomous art. For it had to be distant and very different from us if it was to be capable of becoming a redemptive symbol for our fate. It had to be almost hostile in its sublime indifference if it was to give a new meaning to our existence. There's more, and I want to read on, but I just want to refer to that sentence right there. In this, I remember so well in the tw in my twenties, which was the the 1960s, uh, things were going flying apart at an incredible speed, and I was feeling that very much. And I remember consciously sitting down and committing a few things to memory, a few lines from from Rilke, a few lines from Yeats, a few lines from Buber few lines from Shakespeare. I remember committing to them to memory, thinking to myself, things are falling apart so quickly. I don't want to be caught. I might be caught without my books. I don't want to be caught without these lines. <laughs> and I still feel that way, by the way. And I think I would add this sentence to them. It had to be almost hostile in its sublime indifference if it was to give a new meaning to our existence. I think we would all do well to memorize that sentence. We will all need it someday. Robert Frost has a version of it in his, uh, uh, I think it's a Mask of Mercy, I can't remember now, uh, where he, uh, where Job and Job's wife get to interrogate God after the fact, you know, all these years later they finally get to go back and say, hey, what, why did you do that? And, uh, the great line in that, in, in the divine response from God was, it had to seem unmeaning to have meaning. A great mystery therein lies. It had to seem unmeaning to have meaning. So Rilke says, it had to be almost hostile in its sublime indifference if it was to give a new meaning to our existence. For we began to understand nature only when we no longer understood it. When we felt that it was the other, indifferent toward men, which, which has no wish to let us enter, then for the first time we stepped outside of nature, alone, out of the lonely world. And then the real business of religion begins. That's not true. The first thrust of the religion is to wake us up out of that, the somnambulance of the womb-like existence. The first thrust is to say, come up out of Egypt. Come into the wilderness. Leave all, your, all that familiar stuff behind. The word religion comes from the word religare, which means to bind back, to, to bring that cosmos back into relationship, but this time consciously. 
And the difference between a, an unconscious unity and a conscious unity is the difference between night and day. The conscious unity is a communion, a community, in a conscious way. And, and uh, it is that, it's the movement from the containment to the wilderness to the conscious people of God. That's the Old Testament metaphor for it, you see. From the slaves of, a, of an Egyptian uh, dominant culture out into the wilderness of isolation and, and alienation and hardship and confusion and disorientation into the place where the people become a people. Ruber says what we have left when we step into that world at some recesses, at, at what we have left at some level in us is a yearning for the cosmic connection to the true thou. And he says that's really the engine of religious life, that little yearning and what we do with it. Now, the yearning is in its pure and unrepressed form so counterintuitive to use a modern uh, a word out of modern physics. The yearning for the cosmic connection with the true thou is so, in its pure form, is so counterintuitive. And if allowed to invade the more common sense dimensions of life so omnivorous and desperate, that those who have no properly informed religious context for it will either strain to repress it or poison their surrounding political, social, and economic life with its limitless appetites. And so we need a place for it. But now imagine it is the need to bind back the world, the inability to come to know the whale and everything the whale stands for, by, use, by the use of the power of knowledge. And the author of The Cloud of Unknowing says the alternative is the power of love. We could come to know it that way. And so that is the, that is the dilemma that faces the, the crew of the Pequod just shy of halfway through this book. It is the dilemma, of course, that faces us. And then we shall watch to see how this is, how this, how they respond to this situation. What I want us to do is take a look um, at chapter 60. Chapter 60 is entitled The Line. And it's the harpoon line or the whale line, harpoon line. And remember now, we have, at least I would have us look at it this way, what we have just encountered is the, is the failure to come to know the whale in the ordinary attempt, in the ordinary approach. And the dilemma presented if the Pequod crew had read The Cloud of Unknowing was that you cannot do it by the power of knowing, but only by the power of love. And then we will see how these how the Pequod and its crew carry that impulse, what Buber calls the yearning for the cosmic connection to the true thou. And they have perverted it so that it is almost unrecognizable, almost, thanks to the, to the, to the fact that their author is Melville, it's not totally unrecognizable, but almost unrecognizable. Somebody once said, 
that a good symbolism ought to almost evade consciousness, <laughs> but not quite. So the line, and it says of the line, when the painted canvas cover is clamped on the American line tub, the line tub is where the line is, is curled around, when the painted canvas cover is clapped on the American line tub, the boat looks as if it were pulling off with a prodigious great wedding cake to present to the whale. That is an extremely important and very brief symbolic illusion. It is that longing to connect in some other way. It is the need to go beyond uh, the power, aggressiveness, acquisitiveness, domination motifs that uh, dominate the whaling industry and to make that other kind of connection, to move from trying to know by the power of knowledge to trying to know by the power of love. A wedding cake. One of the most shocking things that the, that the uh, Hebrews had to learn in the desert is that their God was a jealous God and wanted to be their bridegroom. And they must approach him as a bride. The line goes out symbolically representing the real need. The real need is to, is to bring about some kind of wedding of this mystery with human life. And then in the, in the course of going out after the whale, the line is, is, uh, is laid around the boat so that it will play out quickly when it, the, dark, the uh, harpoon is shot. The whale line folds the whole boat in its complicated coils, twisting and writhing around in almost every direction. All the oarsmen are involved in its perilous contortions. Nor can any son of mortal woman for the first time seat himself amid those hempen intricacies and while straining his utmost at the oar, bethink him at any unknown instant the harpoon may be darted and all those horrible contortions be put into play like ringed lightnings. One of the great dangers is to have that line suddenly be put into play by a harpoon hitting a whale. I don't want to ruin the last scene for you, but that's what kills Ahab. So the graceful repose of the line as silently serpentines about the oarsman before being brought into actual play, this is a thing which carries more of the true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters round their necks. But it is only when caught in a swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in the whaleboat, you would not at heart feel one whit more of terror than though seated before your evening fire with a poker and not a, not a harpoon at your side. We're all in that whaleboat with that, with that line across our laps and across our wrists. And it may go into play at any moment. And then we'll realize that we are connected. 
that if I drive down Highway 12 at 60 miles an hour, I put my life in trust to the people driving the other, the other direction, that they will stay on their side of the yellow line. We, have, we, we rely on one another that way. The point of this, though, really, is that it is the wedding cake. And the impulse really is in the wedding cake. But if we don't happen to have the author of the cloud of unknowing around when we need him, or if his voice has been so lost in the cacophony of nonsense going on around us, then we may not know what to do with the whale line, which is the wedding cake. We may not have any... We may not be informed as to the proper use of that in the way that Virgil helped Dante shift from one form of adaptation to another. No voice of Virgil, no voice of the author of the Cloud of Unknowing to say that the power of knowledge has come, or in Dante's case, the power of moral effort at righteousness has now come to an end. And you have to take your risk in, uh, in, in, a, in a more, uh, more open-ended cosmos. Well, without that, then we treat the wedding cake as though it were business as usual. And here's what happens. The next chapter is called Stub Kills a Whale. First of all, two things to bear in mind. The whale line is the wedding cake. And the question is how we're going to use it. And the second part of the echo structure here is to go back again, once again, and remember Ishmael and Queequeg sitting in bed, their knees up under their chins, smoking that pipe and becoming married See, it was the smoking of the pipe that consummated their marriage. That is the consummation of the marriage ritual here. After the smoking of the pipe, Queequeg grabbed hold of Ishmael by the waist, put his forehead against his head, and said, We are married, and I would die for you. So the smoking of the pipe is the consummation of the wedding ceremony, and the whale line is the wedding cake. And now watch what happens. Lazily undulating in the trough of the sea, and ever and anon tranquilly spouting his vapory jet, the whale looked like a portly burger smoking his pipe of a warm afternoon. But that pipe, poor whale, was thy last. And so they saw the spout, and they said, There she blows, and the chase was on, and the hot and heavy. There go the flukes, was the cry, an announcement immediately followed by Stubbs producing his match and igniting his pipe. So now they're both smoking. But how does this stand in comparison to Ishmael and Queequeg? Many references over and over and over again, references to the smoking. Stubbs still smoking his pipe, spluttering out the smoke as he spoke all the while puffing the smoke from his mouth, over and over again, stub, the, the smoking of stuff. And then it gets even more complicated, brings into play the wedding cake itself. The harpoon was hurled. Stern all, the, the oarsman backed water, 
the same moment something went hot and hissing along every one of their wrists. Hissing is a key word, by the way. You can always... It was the magical line. An instant before, Stubb had swiftly caught two additional turns with it around the loggerhead, whence, by reason of its increased rapid circling, a hempen blue smoke now jetted up and mingled with the steady fumes of his pipe. The whale is smoking. Stubb is smoking. The whale line that was a wedding cake is smoking. What's going to happen? Are we going to have a wedding? Is it going to be a wedding? And the whale is struck and begins to go through the agony of dying. There are a number of places in this text where the, where the whale's death throes are tremendously moving. And this, for me, is one of them. And it says, all the while... This is while the whale is undergoing this agony of death. All the while, jet after jet of white smoke was agonizingly shot from the spinnacle of the whale and vehement puff after puff from the mouth of the excited headsman. So there it is. This agonizing smoking of the whale and the vehement smoking of stub a failed attempt at connecting. It's just the way it is in human life. So often, things start out with, with the thing coiled into a wedding cake and that's what we want. And it ends with this kind of desperate puffing around that comes to nothing but a finally death. And the whale dies. And it's not enough to say he dies because what's happened is that the marriage ha was not consummated. And so it's not that he dies, but as someone says in the text, his heart had burst. He's dead, Mr. Stubb, said Tashtigo. Yes, both pipes smoked out. And withdrawing his own from his mouth, Stubb scattered the dead ashes over the water and for a moment stood thoughtfully eyeing the vast corpse he had made. There you have it. Started out as a marriage ceremony and had all the possibility of that. I said started out as a marriage ceremony. It started out the business of religion is relegare, to bind back again. And the implement of that binding was that line. It was to be the line. The, imp the implement of the binding is some kind of, some kind of line. And so Stubb had it be a whale line or a harpoon line, and it produced a corpse. But it is a religious impulse to bind back, even though profoundly perverted. So the religious impulse ended in a corpse. And now the, the attendant religious impulse simply go to work on the corpse. That is to say, we will now have the parody of the religious ritual. We will now have the Eucharist and the sermon all uh, 
pronounced or all performed on the corpse. So that chapter 64 is called Stubb's Supper. And Stubb is sufficiently left over from a former age that he's, he still likes to eat these whales when he kills them. Um, so he wanted a steak. And uh, Dago, the great Negro harpooner, cuts him a steak. And it says about midnight. It's important that it's midnight because these time things uh, play a part in this story. You remember after uh, Ahab, had, we talked about last week, after Ahab had brought about what appeared to be a cultural consensus, we had a midnight scene and we saw how quickly that cultural consensus degenerated. So this is midnight. We're seeing the other side of things. About midnight, that steak was cut and cooked and lighted by two lanterns of sperm oil. Stubb stoutly stood up to his spermacetti supper at the capstan head as if that capstan were a sideboard. Now, picture that in your mind's eye and see if it doesn't come out looking something like an altar. I think Melville has... Uh, added a few details here to encourage us to recognize this symbolism. He is standing up at a tall table with two lighted lamps on either side. And there's his stake in the middle. Okay. Uh, 